This is a near-perfect song, in my opinion. And if you don't like this, you don't like America. Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, and general complainers tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we'll hit some history, some stats on the artist and album, and then we'll do a deep dive on a handful of tracks along with some audio clips. And at the end, we're all going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. I want to thank you for spending some time with us today, and I often like to start out the episode with a quote about the artist, and this one is particularly tasty. This comes from a letter from the Warner Brothers Records president to the artist. Quote, your group has many problems. It's apparent that nobody in your organization has enough influence over your bass player to evoke anything resembling normal behavior. You are now branded as an undesirable group in almost every recording studio in Los Angeles. We haven't gotten all the New York reports in yet, but you guys run through engineers like a steamroller. So this week we're diving into uh, what has to be one of the most filmed, recorded, documented, and written about bands in history. And as someone who knows virtually nothing about them and doesn't really like the stuff I do know by them, I'm either the best or worst person to host the show today. (laughs) And that's because we're talking about The Grateful Dead and their fifth studio release called American Beauty. So we'll get to our cast introductions in just a minute, but first, let's jump right into the music by playing the big hit from this album. This song is called Truckin'. Truckin', got my chips cashed in. Keep truckin', like the do the man together. More or less in life. Well, Adam, listen, you already screwed it up because clearly the Grateful Dead do not have hits. So just the fact that you think that shows that you're getting off on the wrong foot. Yeah, I tend to agree. I'm a complete noob. All right. Well, there it is. So now we've got some flavor and context for the conversation that will follow. So we're going to go around the studio now and get introductions from our crew today, along with our you know, sometimes snarky tweet-length reviews. So let's first throw it over to Phil. Hey, guys. Phil this week. This is a record I am super familiar with, even though I would consider myself a casual dead fan, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit today. My tweet-length review here would be uh, American Beauty. Absolute classic. Short and sweet. All right, we like it. Rob, let's throw it over to you. Yeah, thanks, Adam. This is Rob here. My tweet-length review is, they come with a lot of baggage. I know, the fans, the drugs, the 45-minute space jams. But rest assured, the Grateful Dead are the great American rock band. And this album goes a long way towards proving it. All right. Tom, let's hear it. You know, I also have a pretty short and sweet tweet-length review here. American Beauty truth in advertising. Very beautiful, very American. All right. And this is Adam, everyone. And my my quick tweet is that 
What do you get when you mix patchouli and nitrous? Perhaps the 13th movie in the Fast and Furious franchise where Vin Diesel dons a drug rug and he and a CGI'd Paul Walker settle their differences by twirling around in a field for three and a half hours. Or maybe, maybe you get one of the biggest cult bands in history. But is that a cult I want to be a part of? We shall see. You don't so. have to be a part of the cult. You can just listen to it without being a part of the cult. <laughs> you got it so wrong. I hope you're ready for a fight, Adam. I really do. <laughs> I hope you're ready to dig in. You totally, you, you even missed the drugs that they enjoy doing. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I'm going to go in a slightly different direction and just let the audience know that I am just absolutely ripe for cult membership. It's, it's sort of in my personality. So if you've got a really strong pitch on the cult, let me know. Like I was a total Rajnishi sympathizer until they started like poisoning people at Hardee's or whatever in the documentary. Anyway. I think sorry. that was just Hardee's. They, I think those people just ate Hardee's. <laughs> <laughs> Should have gone to Arby's. That's really funny. I was driving through Southern Delaware a couple weeks ago and I saw like four Hardee's in the course of five miles. And I was like, this is where all the Hardee's have gone. They've gone to Southern Delaware, like a some kind of fast food retirement village. I'm just going to throw this out here. You guys cutting to our sponsor, Hardee's. <laughs> now, this, is, <laughs> this is this memory, which just like encapsulated my seventh grade year. There was the teacher that was, I guess, having like a mental breakdown. And then there was the unfun teacher. And I had the unfun teacher. And there were two buses coming back from a field trip. And one of the buses got off and went to a McDonald's. And our bus kept on going and got off and went to a Hardee's. And I was just like, what the fuck are you doing to us? Like watching everybody else in the other bus like McDonald's. You have to go to Roy Rogers. I also went to that Hardee's. All right. So, man, what a journey this week has been for me. So six days ago, I was annoyed that I got stuck with this album. And today, I actually cried while listening to one of the tracks. So just kind of jumping into general impressions, let's go around the room again and just how was your week, guys? It sounds like you are all very familiar with this album. Hey, 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 listeners, huge surprise. The guys who mention Fish every other breath are actually Grateful (laughs) Dead fans also. (laughs) Not that big of a Grateful Dead fan, though. I have to say I'm not a huge Grateful Dead fan. This album, as compared to other Grateful Dead fans. Well, yeah. (laughs) I mean, as compared to other Grateful Dead fans, I am a complete and total noob, even though I've listened to this album a hundred times. The Grateful Dead had a whole live thing going on and then a whole separate album thing going on. And the two barely ever crossed paths. I feel like the album experience that they put out is so much different than the live experience. Even in interviews, they've said, like, we can't manufacture that live energy in the studio. And it's been an issue for us. But basically, you know, in 1970, they released Working Man's Dead and they released American Beauty. And I think both of those albums are absolute classics. There are some beautiful songs on this. I remember I... I actually was trying to find it today because I still have it. I bought a Grateful Dead t-shirt in the seventh grade. It still fits me. Oh, no. It was one of those gigantic ones. And I had yeah. never heard a moment of the Grateful Dead. And when I first heard the Grateful Dead, and I believe the first Grateful Dead song that I ever heard was Truckin'. And I was like, this is the band that was this dangerous? <laughs> it made, like, it made that you know, badass like, shirt? What the, what the hell? Yeah, I, exactly. I was definitely drawn in. In the early 90s by their marketing prowess. This was when after Jerry Garcia died. And I feel like I had similar feelings the first time I heard somebody was like, check out this cool dead song. And I was like, what? Like I I expected like (laughs) Slayer, but then it also to like move me emotionally. 
which Slayer unfortunately does not. I, I think this is one of the challenges, and I'm sure we're going to be wrestling with it, that they come, like I said in my tweet, they come with so much baggage. There's so many things that people think they are, and there's so many different things they actually have been because they were around for so long and yeah, because their whole right. bag was to change it up every night and they set a template for how concerts should work that bands like Fish and some other modern bands have followed, right? I would say, but just, yeah, just to tell you my general impressions, this is Rob here. I think this is exactly what exactly what Tom said. It's an American classic. And when I think of the Grateful Dead, they both added to the American song canon and they introduced people to many forgotten American songs from the past. They were interpreters of a lot of traditional music from America. So a lot of those songs that aren't theirs are most associated with them, which I think is really awesome. But then on this album, you see them adding back to that canon. Some of these, some of these songs should be played in church, as far as I'm concerned. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, "Friend of the Devil" sounds like it was written in 1914 or something yes, like that. Right. Yeah. 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 Country classic, instantaneously. So one one thing that I took away from this week was that these guys flipped the music industry paradigm. It used to be. You made your money on album sales. And the live show was an advertisement for the album. You toured to support the album. The Dead were the complete opposite. They wanted the studio albums to support the live show. And holy shit, did they succeed. So I know a little bit about the history of this. So like I read a book about the very early origins of the Dead a while ago, basically up to their appearance at Woodstock and the beginning of Working's Man's. And one thing that was really interesting is the Dead, when they negotiated their original recording contract, I don't remember the exact details, but like basically they didn't own the rights to the recordings in the same way, like they were less concerned about ownership of the recording, but they wanted to retain freakish ownership of the song rights. They may have made less money off of the version of Ripple on American Beauty than they did the version, the live version on, what's that record called? Reckoning. But this also afforded them a tremendous amount of time in the recording studio, right? Because of the way the deal worked, they got seemingly unlimited time. They negotiated unlimited studio yes. time, which unlimited, is crazy yeah. to me because they're not a yeah. studio band. Yeah. Well, okay. I think it's important. Maybe Adam's about to say this too, but the way they really started was as a band to play at Ken Kesey's acid test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which right. was just a party where people hung out and took LSD before it was even illegal. They, like we, we were literally exploring as a culture, especially in San Francisco, what that did to you and what art could possibly come from it. And they were just there all night, an acid trip, for those who don't know, lasts quite a long time, especially if you take a lot of it. And they didn't have to play. They didn't have to play songs if they did play. They just, it was completely free zone to do whatever they wanted. And so that might sound terrible to you to listen to. In fact, it sounds terrible to me. I don't, I'm not a big fan of avant-garde music and John Cage, but it's important to know that they came from this world of complete freedom. And that was a that was really new at the time. If you see Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir talking on a lot of those late night talk shows in the late seventies, you know, and it's interesting they show up as a pair. They'll definitely recount that time in San Francisco as if 
Everybody was in that scene genuinely believed that humanity was on the brink of a psychological explosion. So there was so much shit that people were like negotiating around them. They're like, dude, this doesn't matter. And it just didn't quite come to fruition the way they imagined. Yeah, they were brought down to earth when they got busted for drugs. And they were sort of like, what? This, there's something wrong with drugs? What are you talking about? Like, Everybody should be doing this. This is the next step in human evolution. Well, it is. You have to acknowledge that it is confusing that a substance that's first created by a pharmaceutical company, then used by the government in testing, we're talking about LSD now, and is not illegal and has a profound effect. Everyone, maybe save one on this call, knows what I'm talking about. A profound effect on your worldview. And then they make it illegal and suddenly they tell you it's wrong. It must have been quite a shock culturally for that transition to happen. Well, especially for the people who were sort of believers, right? People who would have seen this as like you whoever called it it was Tom, you said the next step in human evolution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some hell bop shit. But that's a great transition. So let's get into some of the history. So I would like to say that I read a book this week about the Grateful Dead. And there are so many. I think there's something like 40 that I saw on Amazon about the Grateful Dead. I did find one from 2003 called A Long Strange Trip. But that was 750 pages. And I'll be honest, not even the audio copy would have, I would have gotten through that at like three times speed. But in 2017, they turned it into a documentary movie. It's about four hours long. So I watched that. And it, it's a great, a great documentary if you have a chance to watch it. And after watching that, I won't say I'm necessarily a fan yet, but I think I'm starting to see, to see the appeal here. So let's start back at the beginning and the story of Jerry Garcia, the founding member. So he was born in San Francisco in 1942. His father, Jose Ramon Garcia, was a professional musician. And so music was all around the house in, in his very early years. Now, when he was very young, he lost a couple important things. First was the top half of his middle finger on his right hand, which was his pick hand. And this happened in a wood splitting accident, like you have, <laughs> like a four-year-old or five-year-old would have a wood splitting accident. The second thing was that his father died when he was only five years old in a fly fishing accident. Basically, he slipped in the water and I don't know if he hit his head, but he drowned before people could get to him. Wasn't Jerry Garcia there when that happened? I believe he witnessed so there that. Are, there are debates. I've read some biographers who say that they think Jerry mentally invented that story in his head from hearing about it so many times because there are other interviews where, or other people who were there said that Jerry was not there. So I think they could go either way on that. I wonder if the drugs had anything to do with his lack of clarity <laughs> in long-term memory. <laughs> <laughs> Implanting memories along the way. So his grandmother, he lives with his grandmother a lot, and, and she exposes him to bluegrass music. And he didn't really get serious about music until he picked up a banjo at age eight after hearing an Earl Scruggs album. And he was thinking, I got to make these sounds. I got to get these same sounds that I'm hearing on the records. So bluegrass music was his first real love, and he described it as conversational, as in the instruments were having conversations with each other. And he realized that you could organize music and you could organize a band around this conversational concept. So he dives into bluegrass, eventually picks up the guitar too. Goes to high school, spends some time at the San Francisco Art Institute. He's forced to join the army after he steals his mother's car, but he winds up somehow getting discharged. I, I didn't see a whole lot oh, of details. You know how he that. got discharged? He went AWOL nine times in eight months. And they were like, you don't want to be here. <laughs> it's, you probably should just get out of here. Yeah. All right, so flash forward to 1961 when Jerry Garcia meets a guy named Robert Hunter who winds up becoming the principal lyricist for The Grateful Dead. Again, something I didn't really know was that 
this guy, Robert Hunter, wrote most of the lyrics. So you have the band writing the music and this one guy who's responsible for something like 95% of the lyrical content on all these songs, which is a really interesting way to, to assemble a band, I thought. Well, additionally to that, I think at this time that's accurate. But later, as Bob Weir started writing more songs, the guitar player and the other singer in The Grateful Dead, he had a separate songwriting partner. So to me, it's interesting or a separate lyricist partner, rather. So it's interesting that they both went that route. And he was like, Jerry's got his guy. I need to go find my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I found it interesting that Robert Hunter is listed as like being in the band. It wasn't like additional lyrics by or anything like that. If you look at... They called him a they member. They called him a right. member of the band, which makes sense. I think almost all the songs started with him writing them as a poem. He mentioned, I saw something where he said he wrote Broke Down Palace and To Lay Me Down in the same afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And Ripple, too. Jesus. Yeah, I always understood it as their poems. I don't know how the songs, which poems were selected to be converted into songs. Yeah. And let's start right now, because there's a lot of things that are misunderstood about this band that were, I know we can't clear them all up in an hour, but this is one place where they really diverge from their progeny, which is Fish, which is their lyrics are really good. Oh, they're fucking ace for sure. And I'm not a hater of at least some of the earlier weirder Fish lyrics. And I don't want to dive into this too much, but the Dead's lyrics are so much better and deeper. And then, you know, Fish get into this whole like wingsuit nonsense later. It's ridiculous. It's a different approach, but I think we should just make that distinction. In terms of poignancy, there are not many lyrics from this era that I find to be more poignant than some of these dead songs. They really do that Bob Dylan thing where they, mm -hmm. they give you that punch of that one line that's just delivered perfectly. And you're like, oh man, that really puts me in a mindset. And as much as I love Fish, I can't get into a mindset with 99% of their garbage lyrics. <laughs> you mentioned Dylan and that that's a great little keystone here as we work through their history. So in 1962 and 64, Garcia was playing in a band called the Sleepy Hollow Hog Stompers. And it's during that time that he meets fellow guitarist and songwriter Bob Weir, keyboard player Ron McKernan, who's AKA Pigpen. And they then form Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, <laughs> which is mostly bluegrass, right? It's really? very, very, <laughs> <laughs> jug, a jug band. He found that he was, you know, focusing too much on technique and didn't really like the type of musician that he was becoming. So similar to Dylan, he went electric. So they pick up electric instruments and they formed what they described as a, as a mutated bluegrass band and called themselves the Warlocks. So in 1965, the Warlocks play Magoo's Pizza Parlor, where bass player, it wasn't a bass player yet at the time, Phil Lesh, he, at this point, had never seen a rock band. He had only ever heard it on the radio. And at the time, he was doing classical music composition. Garcia meets him at this Magoo's Pizza Parlor and says, do you want to be in the band? And of course, Phil Lesh, you know, jumps, jumps on board with that. I want to talk about the ages first because Bob Weir must have been like 15 when that happened. There's like at least Super a six young. or seven year age gap between Bob Weir yeah. and the rest of the guys. I think Phil Lesh is actually the oldest, which I just learned this week because there's a there's an eight year age gap between him and Bob Weir. But you're alluding to it now that I think I watched the same documentary you did a while back and they talk about one of the things that was interesting is you brought a jazz and classical guy together, Phil Lesh, with a bluegrass guy, Jerry, yeah. with kind of an R&B drummer who was... Bill Murray, a.k.a. Bill Kreutzmann, 
a blues guy, pig pen, and sort of a more marching band guy, which was Mickey Hart. And you got this interesting mix of styles. My comment was just going to be that they went from a horrendous band name to a somehow even worse band name to a pretty badass band name in the Warlocks. And then Grateful Dead is a fantastic band name. Yes. That's a, it's so good. And when they were walking around as the Warlocks, they quickly realized that there was another band in New York who were also calling themselves oh, the I Warlocks. Know. I know it. Rob, who do you think that band was? That was Lou Reed and uh, John Cale of the Velvet Underground. Yep. That is correct, right? So they decided they need a different band name. And at this point, Garcia is already establishing himself as the leader, although he would never admit it, never wanted to be the leader. But as the story goes, in need of a new name, they opened up a book of folklore and randomly selected a page. And on that page was Grateful Dead, which is a folk concept of a traveler who encounters a corpse of someone who never received a proper burial. Typically stemming from an unpaid debt, the traveler then either pays off the dead person's debt or pays for the burial. The traveler is then later rewarded in their life by the person or animal who they who they righted the wrong for. Healing ancestral wounds. <laughs> All right, so the Grateful Dead is born, but anyone who knows the band knows there's still one key ingredient missing. And we'll get into that after our favorite segment, By the Numbers. All right, so we're going to work through some, I have a decent, decent amount of numbers here. We're going to start with 16 million, which was the total album sold worldwide by the Grateful Dead. 2300. That is the concerts played between 1965 and 1995. Ooh, that's a lot of gigs. Which is when Garcia died, right? 95 is Garcia died, right. One wonders if they had more people come to their concerts than albums sold. For sure. 16 Absolutely. million is not that many albums sold for a band that is as iconic. Well, some of those shows would have been like Watkins Glen. You know, I'd be like half a million oh, yeah. people at that. So oh, like, yeah. you stack that up fast. My dad saw him at RFK in the early 70s. Like 300,000 people there. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's, that's a great, I have that number too. So there's an estimation but 25 million, the number of people the Grateful Dead have performed for over the decades, and they've entertained nearly 100 of those people. Well, oh, sorry, that's a totally <laughs> stupid joke. Sorry. I've been waiting a year and a half to do that yeah, joke. You nailed it, too. <laughs> you did great. nail it. That was pretty good. <laughs> One does wonder, though, is that 25 million unique people? Because there are a lot of people who are like, I saw 187 dead shows, and people are like, fucking nope. Like, Better question. How many people were outside in the parking lot doing drugs and thought they saw them? <laughs> All right, 14,000, the number of bootleg recordings that you can get on the Internet Archive. 346, the number of hours you can listen to The Grateful Dead on Spotify on The Grateful Dead playlist, which equates to just over 14 straight days. 604, the number of speakers in The Dead's one-of-a-kind and first-of-a-kind custom PA system dubbed The Wall of Sound that was so loud you could hear it a half a mile away. Dope. And it, it looked badass. Can we just throw in there that they had to figure out how that if you ever see videos of them, they're using double microphones. It's yes. two microphones out yeah. of phase to avoid the feedback problem of having the speaker right behind you. Which is just 
Awesome. I don't even know how that works, but I'm going to, Phil, we should talk about that. I don't, know how the, I don't know how the double phase thing worked, but uh, I do know that that is like the first large scale line array, which is basically like the industry standard, right? Like when they hang those stacks, right? Sort of above yeah, the stage right. now. Those are line arrays and they sort of, or, or, or if you see like a football stadium where they have those, those speakers on the top of the stands, basically like mm-hmm. there's a really complicated physics equation worked out there. Well, you know, you know who designed that? Who? Eno? Owsley. Yeah, he was the sound man for the Grateful Dead and also a great purveyor, sorry, maker of LSD uh, in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so he's nice. a very famous, they call him a clandestine chemist on Wikipedia, but he was a, a <laughs> chemist with bona, with bona fides, but then he was also the sound guy for the Grateful Dead and he developed that wall of sound. I do wonder, are they daisy chaining all those together? Or because they can't be running a separate line to each one of those. You got to be daisy chaining a whole bunch of them. It's a super, super complicated crossover system where certain frequencies come from certain speakers to point them in certain places based on like projected wave cancellation. And then it worked. And then it worked. Right. <laughs> and and back then doing the uh, Phil, what'd you call it? Crossover. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, can you imagine doing that analog? No, I, no, like running the line through a capacitor or something. Anyway, I just picture the whole thing catching fire. That's my. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> it was like forty tons, by the way. It was unbelievable. All right, our next number here, forty-three, which is the number of people in the Grateful Dead touring entourage in nineteen seventy-two, including friends, family, and non-permanent stage crew. All right, the next two might be my favorite. One. The number of roadies named Ramrod. (laughs) (laughs) Like that is just badass. And the number zero is the number of books that Ramrod had read in his life. A number that he bragged about. So (laughs) RIP Ramrod. All right. And our last number here is 240,000. That is the cost to buy the entire world's supply of LSD in 1950, which was made by Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland. Hey, everybody, we'll get back to the show in less than a minute. But in that time, I have a request. If you've ever gotten any value from this podcast, whether you learned something new about your favorite band, laughed at one of our tweet length reviews or screamed at your podcast player for something we got wrong, please take a few seconds and leave us a rating and review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those two simple things can help spread the word about the show and help us continue to bring you our unique takes on music history, as well as all the bands you love and hate. So, Rob, we're going to piggyback on something you had talked about, right, which was the acid test. So we're going to flash over to a guy named Ken Kesey and a secret government experiment called MK Ultra. Now, you may know Ken Kesey is the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What you may not know about is this MK Ultra program. So this was a secret government program run by the CIA between 1953 and 1973 and was running illegal human experiments to develop drugs to be used during interrogation. I don't think they were illegal at the time. They were not, no. (laughs) A little, I mean, the practices were very illegal. But yeah, it was all about trying to figure out a way to coerce confessions and brainwash people. I was just reading an article today, by the way, about a brothel in San Francisco. Oh, dude, same here. run by the CIA where they would unwittingly give customers LSD and then watch them have sex. Oh, I didn't hear that And they were like, you can't say anything because you're in a whorehouse and we'll rat you out. So just go along with the trip. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, just a little more framing, right? This chemical gets discovered accidentally by a pharmaceutical company and the guy who invented it 
dosed himself and goes on a famous bicycle ride. And even to this day in San Francisco, they celebrate Bicycle Day where he was high as hell. And the government's trying to figure out how to make use of it because it has a profound effect on your consciousness. Profound. I can't stress that enough. If you haven't tried LSD, well, A, you should. But B, <laughs> it's profound. You hear that, kids? Rob says, do LSD. <laughs> it's, it's not subtle. He's not. He's, it's not subtle, right? You, you absolutely know something has changed materially in the way you're processing information. But I think what's so strange about it is that it's very hard from the outside to understand what the effect is. And it's very difficult to describe or display on a film screen in a movie, say, what the effect is. So just imagine all these researchers trying to figure out, they know something big is happening with the people who take this substance. And of course, they want to try to weaponize it in some way, shape, or form for the military as a truth serum or whatever they're going to do. But they have no clue how to do it. So it's just like there's this weird disconnect, I find, with what was going on in the in the subculture of people actually taking the drug recreationally and, for lack of a better term, seeing God. And these researchers who are completely disconnected from its actual effects, but attempting to observe it from afar. So this chemist Gottlieb is the guy who the government puts in charge of the, the testing protocols. So they get all this, they get the world's supply and they start distributing it around the country to universities and hospitals to run these experiments. And as Rob said, right, people who volunteered, no surprise, wound up enjoying the experience. And one of those people, right, is, is Ken Kesey here, who took LSD, quote, in ways that the program never imagined. <laughs> I just love that. So now our, our lyricist friend, Robert Hunter, he also gets in on one of these government-sponsored fiascos. And it's not long before the rest of the Grateful Dead are getting in on the experiments, too. One thing I just think, again, to contextualize, like, Kesey here, though, like, Kesey is a, a student at Stanford, right? And who's his sort of peer on the East Coast? Is the Harvard guy? Timothy Leary. Leary. Yeah. So like these guys definitely sort of get painted in pop culture as these like drugged out outsiders and they definitely become that. But like these are elite, you know, these are the cream of the crop. Well, you know? to be clear, yeah, they're, you're correct to a certain extent. Leary was a professor at Harvard and he did take it too far, I think. Kesey, I think, was a kind of a clean cut military type guy who probably volunteered to help his country and then became, effectively became a hippie and an author. And maybe Adam's about to reference it, but there's a great book, a journalistic book about this time called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. It's a, it's a great read about the, the so-called acid tests and what Ken Kesey was doing around California at that time. So their bass player, Phil Lesh, did mention that this was a ton of fun, but there were a lot of experiences that were not fun but the camaraderie and fellowship of playing those acid tests and being in the same room really built this brotherhood together. Now, famously, Pigpen, their keyboard player, was not too keen on LSD and, and preferred alcohol, but would get really upset when they would secretly dose him, which I just thought was like, well, that's pretty jacked up. Yeah, by the What's way- What's that? And they slip it in his coffee. Kids out there, if you're experimenting with LSD, don't dose people. Agreed. Not, not yeah, cool. strongly agreed. Not yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Super I'll uncool. sign up for that. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, no, back in the day, they would play. We, we've all, or three of us have lived for a long time or did live for a long time in San Francisco. So there's a lot of Grateful Dead lore around San Francisco. But specifically at the Fillmore, they still, to this day, have a basket of apples out as you walk in the door. And back in the day, the Dead would play shows there, and they would have dosed all those apples. And you would just grab one and have yourself a dose. So now you may be wondering, how the hell did these guys get signed? So we're going to bring back a character, Joe Smith, from our... Astral Weeks episode, 
Joe Smith is from Warner Brothers Records. And I think at this point, he might be the president and they need, they, they know something is happening in the San Francisco scene and they, they want a rock band. So they wind up signing the Grateful Dead in 1967 and are extremely disappointed when the first couple albums are super trippy, don't get airplay, and they're basically not making any money on them. Now, those 1967 and 1968 releases do sound like a Doors album. You know, there's the Farfisa organ in it. There's kind of that tremolo guitar, a very different sound than what we hear on this album. So we know that Joe Smith got pissed off. I mentioned that quote in the beginning where he sends the letter to the band and basically says, what the hell are you doing? Garcia and the rest of the crew don't really care and they just want to play music and they're okay if they get kicked off of the label. Yeah, what year did they receive that letter? Uh, that probably would have been, it was right before Oxomaxala or what is it, Oxomaxoa. So I think like 68 maybe. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're like, we need to put out a real normal album. So we're going <laughs> to right. call it something <laughs> unpronounceable. <laughs> Right. So that's the crazy thing is that they're in the studio and we don't think of them as a studio band, right? We think of them as a live band, but on these earlier records, they were getting really weird in the studio. At one point they broke into a zoo and just recorded the animals at night to use as like a backing track. And Bob Weir said that at one point they went out in LA on a hot smoggy day, recorded 30 minutes of just air. Then they went out to the desert and recorded clean air. Thick air. You got to get that thick air. <laughs> and then put the two tracks over top of each other and where the phases would change, they were like, oh, well, that's our rhythm track. Like, what the hell is going on? Well, we've already noted that we're not huge deadheads compared to deadheads, even though we have, or I'll speak for myself. I've listened to a lot of Grateful Dead material. I've never listened to any of those studio albums you just referenced. Never. <laughs> What's the one like Something of the Sun? It's like it's got a Anthem purple. of the Sun. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. pseudo familiar with that. But uh, I feel like it starts at working. Honestly, I feel like the Grateful Dead for me starts at this greatest hits my father had growing up that had like that Bertha drawing on it. And it had like trucking and a couple of other songs. Hell yeah, it's called Skeletons from the Closet. Yeah, yeah. That was my first two, definitely. So in 1969, they released these two albums. The first one is this really trippy one called Oxomoxoa, which is a palindrome if you look at it. The second one was called Live Dead, which was their first live album. And that's actually where I I listened to that. And I can kind of see where maybe that's like the first, (laughs) the first Grateful Dead album as we know it because of the extended jams and the real free nature of a live performance. I take it back. I have listened to Live Dead, but I wouldn't say it's, it is from that earlier period where the live album that I would say I really like, I've listened to a lot of their live recordings, is Europe 72, which came out probably right after they released this. All right, so at this point, the band is not making any money, even touring in the US, they're coming back with empty pockets. Now, simultaneously, they're also losing their love of the hate Ashbury scene. And that's partly because like there are tour buses that are driving down the street, treating them like animals, basically. You know, they could hear the tour buses going, and this is where the Grateful Dead live. And, you know, they're hippies and they uh, they don't bathe and they do LSD. And they were like, we got to get the hell out of here. So the whole band picks up and moves into the country and eats a lot of peaches. And they become, <laughs> as they describe themselves, psychedelic hippie cowboys. So they decided to write an album from the perspective of a California country and Western, and hence was born Working Man's Dead, which was the album prior to the one we're talking about tonight. This is where they somewhat became a commercial success because that album had Casey Jones on it. It's already been said, but that's a stone classic album as well. Absolute must listen, left off of Dimery's list. And has been described as essentially these two albums are like a double album. 
because they came out so quick, yeah. quickly thereafter. And I think there is an, an uncharitable take of American Beauty that it is the, the hits on American Beauty should have been the B-sides of better songs on Working Man's Dead. It's kind of my personal opinion. I'd like- nah, No I, way. Eh, I, I think that Working Man's Dead is, is significantly better. I agree that I would probably like it less if it was presented to me as a double album. But to be clear, I think they were recorded and released Working Man's Dead and then immediately went back into the studio for this one. They changed producers as well. And in fact, Bob Matthews, who had produced the prior two albums, even as of like the, the year 2000, was still pissed off because they just took an engineer named Stephen Barncard and brought him in. So it was just the band, this guy, Stephen Barncard, and they wrote and performed the album there. They said a lot of light touches. They didn't want to over-engineer it. And they went back into the studio for this album in San Francisco, where there was another great band that also happened to be recording next door. And that band was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And they were recording Deja Vu as the dead were recording this album. So one of the things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the harmonies. I knew we album. would get here. <laughs> rubbed you the and wrong way? Well, well, here, here's the thing. So two very different styles. You have Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and Bob Weir had described the differences too, which is the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, they sang in kind of parallel. So the melodies would alter and adjust with each other. The way the dead recorded their harmonies was that everyone had their own harmony and would sing it, and it would kind of work over top of everything else. And it felt a little disjointed to me at times, but, you know. You know Adam, this is one of my big notes here, Okay. I have been spoiled in my life because I've been playing music with you for so long. You taught me how to sing harmony in the second grade. Every once in a while, I have to take a step back and be like, three-part harmony is really fucking hard. And I know you don't think it's really hard, but it's really, really hard. It's truth. And four-part harmony is terribly hard. It's basically impossible. It's fucking impossible. For mortals, yes. And Adam can just construct it out of nowhere, but it's so hard to do. And these guys were not they didn't have that natural inbound ability. They worked at it, but I give sure. a lot of credit for it. There are some cool stories basically about how these guys met at Woodstock. These cohorts, right? The Dead, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young cohort met at Woodstock. Both of them felt very much like fish out of water for different reasons. Crosby, Stills, mm -hmm. Nash, I think that was their first gig. I'm pretty sure that was also the first time Neil Young had ever performed or had ever like, done anything with them. No, like, that's the acoustic set. How'd the uh, harmonies go in that Woodstock set, Adam? Have you watched that lately? <laughs> I did not. Because it ain't great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they, they sort of go on. Should we drop a clip, Rob? <laughs> well, I think it was, it might've been Phil Lesh who was talking about the dead at Woodstock who said that, yeah, that the stage started sinking on one side and then Holy all crap. of the monitors went out on stage <laughs> and then they were like, all right, it's your turn to play a set. And they say it's one of their worst sets ever, but it sounds like the conditions were less than ideal for <laughs> precise well, instrumentation in the book i read Je garcia talks about that in general like he didn't want to play woodstock he didn't want to pay monterey pop he didn't want to play any of that shit because he always felt like that was not their element these big like showcase right. events like that wasn't their thing yeah, and they right. it never seemed to work out for them like when they would play those events something would always seem to go wrong but that's the th okay but that's the thing that we've been dancing around is they are their own thing and they invented yep. a new way to be a band and to interact with their fans a brand yeah. new way. It, and so they were known for playing multiple sets, usually two sets a night, which meant they usually didn't have an opener. People would 
will go. I find myself explaining this all the time. But for those who don't know, your average band that's touring out there puts one act together consisting of 15 to 20 songs, presumably their biggest hits. And they rehearse that and they take it on the road and they play that 200 times in a row. Adam will, I'm sure, know that Aerosmith plays Dream On every single night of their life. Yes, and they do. They're, Steven Tyler is just pretending that it's the first time. The Grateful Dead <laughs> take a completely opposing approach. And they're freed from some of that because they have no hits. You keep saying things are hits. They are, I agree, they're more well known for songs like Truckin' and Casey That's Jones. That's a good point. Hits for the dead. We'll say. But they're definitely not hits. Their first actual hit came in the 80s, and it was called Touch of Grey. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But the point is that every single night, by design, is intended to be different. So they play a three-night run in your city. People, and I'm talking about a lot of people, are going all three nights because every single, they won't repeat a song, right? And this is the same model that Fish used. In addition to that, they let people tape their shows, and a rich online community developed out of that, out of people trading cassette tapes. They let the tapers in and plug into the board to get pretty high quality recordings of these one time only musical performances. And then that's how they build a following with the dead. It would have been even weirder though. Right. Because this would have been like the back page of artsy magazines about tape traders. Right. Like this would have been, this would have been so super subculture in, yeah, yeah. in a super fun way. in the way that there were all these regionalized subcultures in America and the dead had this weird backdoor and all of them through the tape trading. Yeah, and it was trading specifically, right? So you'd probably go to the concert, you'd see someone with their trunk open in the parking lot, and they'd be like, I have 323.77. Do you have a copy of uh, 4.172? Let's do it. (laughs) One more thing I just want to highlight on their live show, contrasting it with a lot of the other bands that are known for big live shows, Kiss, as a great example, who we just recently talked about. KISS has a stage production, and you inherently cannot change a stage production every night. It has to sort of be choreographed in the same thing. And that highlights a visual experience and just an experience where I think the music is minimized in that scenario. And I think that the way that the dead went about it, they maximized the music aspect of the experience that was the experience there's nothing going on in that stage except for music in an interesting way like the grateful dead are a jazz band and they've sort of formatted jazz music for a stadium like real jazz is never going to play in that kind of room right there's too many notes banging around the space well there's no right way to do it right there's no right and wrong it's it's really a matter of taste and i i equated the dead to I saw an interview probably in 2000 or maybe it was 2005 back when Dane Cook, the comedian was really blowing up and he was bragging because he did, he like did like a four hour set and all these other comedians are like, and like, yeah, that big deal. He's like, you know how long my set is? 40 minutes, no dead space. You know, like, what do you want? Like, do you want, you know, the wide open expression or do you want, you know, I've always been of the mindset you come out hard you give you rock people for an hour and a half and you leave your your heart and soul and your sweat and your blood on the stage or you can kind of let the moment and the movement take you over for three and a half hours i agree both concepts are totally valid when done well when done well both are valid and the dead i feel like inspired us as a band in high school because we also never had set lists they just knew what they were doing and were able to transition between songs seamlessly. And we were like, 
let's have a four minute conversation about what song we want to play next before we realize we have to tune <laughs> to the synthesizer. I did hear a couple examples where they were tuning on stage. I was like, oh my God, Grateful Dead, just buy a tuning pedal. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into some songs from our focus list. This first one is, in fact, Truckin'. Okay, I'll levy a complaint. Well, listen, it is a little played as a song. I'm a little tired of hearing it, but I do think it's a great tune overall. But a specific complaint. I don't love the verse vocal. I think they kind of missed here. The one that Bob Weir sings, it's a little overstuffed with words, and it just bumps me every time I hear it. Now, that said, when Jerry Garcia comes in with the sometimes the lights all shining on me, I think that's great. If you've just described my experience with the Grateful Dead, I don't like Bob Weir's voice. <laughs> I love Jerry Garcia's voice. And anytime Bob Weir's singing, I'm like, just, all right. It's not bad on every song, but the contrast between their two voices and how pleasant the timbre is of those voices is pretty stark. This song, again, is very played, but it's got a couple of those killer lines that just come mm. in, you know? Like, living on Red's vitamin C and cocaine, all a friend can say is, ain't it a shame? This is a great line. What a long, strange trip it's been. How prescient and anthemic for this band. Oh, totally. And the way they're yeah. delivered, like as the chord pattern resolves during that line. Oh, it's so nice. In my opinion, this is like a better execution of them sort of like finding their space, right? And their voice. There'll be some other songs we'll talk about where like they're clearly trying to learn from their peers and like, you know, it's their peers are just stronger. Yes, I want to talk about the singing thing. I agree they're not as naturally gifted as Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which is a very high bar. Absolutely. (laughs) But I I think someone said it earlier. It's a little bit like jazz or their approach to harmony is that they all kind of are trying to find their lines. They're not necessarily moving in parallel 100% of the time. Well, that is very similar to how they treat their instruments throughout the arrangements. And so sometimes it works really, really well. And we could cite some examples of that. And sometimes it feels chaotic. But in that sense, it is like jazz, at least that Miles second grade quintet version of jazz, which is everyone soloing at all times. (laughs) It gets tiresome sometimes, I will say. They're, They're busy as a band at their worst. This song, though, is a hit because this is the song that was constructed to play well live. Listen to this song. This is a live song. They did a good studio version of a song that could then be great live. And that walk up into the bridge, that like that kills live. That's it's, it's really well done for that. And I feel like they had a problem replicating a lot of that live feel and energy in the studio. But this is a, this is a success for them. Are you surprised I'm going to mention the Hammond in this song? This is a great example of just how wide-ranging a Hammond can be. Right around, I'll drop a clip here, but there are a couple of sounds that the keyboard player, I think in this case a guy named Howard Wales played the organ, but he's playing with the draw bars and the choruses that give a very different sound from the same organ. Most of the cats that you meet on the streets become true love. Most 
Yeah, I noticed him on the piano in another spot, another song. But I mean, we haven't talked about the differences in musical ability. I think Garcia is an excellent, in fact, underrated guitar player, and he's a great pedal steel player. It comes up on this record. I think that Phil Lesh is a is a pretty good bass player, pretty interesting bass player, if a little busy. Bob Weir, and I think they acknowledge this pretty openly, was way not good enough to be in their band <laughs> in the early days. <laughs> And he's also way younger than them, but they, and I think Pigpen, kind of the same thing, but they said, friendship's more important, so let's keep you in the band. You'll get better eventually. Now, he never reaches the heights of of Jerry or even the other guys, but I don't know. That's kind of why they have to bring in studio musicians occasionally is because a couple of the guys are definitely behind skill-wise. Sure. Well, and Phil Lesh was, he was a music student in college when he joined the band. He was a serious yeah. musician. He plays piano on a bunch of the songs on this album. Phil Lesh, so I'm super familiar with this record, right? Like, my kids listen to this as on, like, a short list of sort of, like, bedtime records, you know? So I didn't, like, deep dive on the record. I listened to the, the, the focus list really hard, and I gave the record one really close listen, just so I'd have interesting things to say, right? Phil Lesh was the standout. Like, from that standpoint, it was like, man... What a weird, quirky bass player. And I started thinking like, man, who do I want to compare him to? Like, I got, there's got to be somebody I could compare him to. And I wanted to compare him to Paul McCartney. And as I thought about it more and more, I was like, what songs am I talking about here? I'm thinking of the stuff on Abbey Road, uh, Second Side of Abbey Road. I'm thinking of some of the stuff on the White Album. And as I thought about it more, that's not even Paul on bass. A lot of that is John playing a bass six. So it's John Lennon playing a freak, you know, like long scale guitar instrument. And that's, that's kind of my complaint about Phil, though. Phil Lesh, he's playing a long he scale it, guitar. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of plays it like a guitar at times. What I would say, and the problem that I have with that specific comparison is that Paul McCartney and John on the bass six, their bass playing is in furtherance of the melody. And I don't get that sense from Phil Lesh. Phil Lesh is playing a lot of notes and they're melodic notes, but I don't think that it is picking up the vocal melody and furthering it throughout the song. He's very busy and he's, a, he's not a bad bass player by any means, but I think that in terms of what I like about bass playing, I like it when the bass is in furtherance of the vocal melody and in furtherance of that th melodic through line of the song. And I don't get the sense that his bass is doing that. Let's move along here to the next song on our focus list. This is Friend of the Devil. <laughs> Not Sympathy of the Devil. I lit up from Reno. I was trailed by 20 hands. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Sit out, run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight. Just oh, Adam's already defamed this <laughs> song with his mistakes, but this is a near perfect song, in my opinion. And if you don't like this, you don't like America. <laughs> <laughs> 
In many ways, I feel like this is the song that, that I don't want to say this was the first Grateful Dead song I heard, but it was the first song that like fully registered. Like this is the Grateful Dead. I mean, I'm thinking of me being like 11 years old, sort of being awestruck by the storytelling and something about the way the descending line works through the verse, but then it isn't there through other parts in the song. I'm talking like, again, like my, my 11 year old self was just floored by contrasting yeah. motion and storytelling yeah. at the same and, time right? like, and how about and so this is an example where i think the the multiple acoustic guitars and the bass swirl together all doing different melodies on top of each other and it really works i was going to give a lot of credit to the mixing on this because how does this not sound busy this should sound so sure. busy because then a busy mandolin comes yep. in everybody's playing a shitload of notes picking real fast and you'd think it would be a mess and it absolutely is not it totally works and hard panning for the win you got <laughs> guitars hard panned you got a mandolin hard panned like it honestly really it really is the most effective use of hard panning that i think that we have heard on any of the albums we've listened to so far to make a bunch of overly complex parts not walk all over each other did the did the did the engineer did the kid mix this too do you know how to mix this record you had mentioned that the, like somebody was pissed off that they had like just snagged an engineer to go make it up oh yeah matthews was the guy who had done the prior albums and this was i can assume it was mixed by steve barncard who was the producer listed yeah. here and again he was just he was just a uh an engineer i think who had maybe helped them live you talk about things being busy. Even the drums are busy. Now, I won't say busy, but there's a lot of really tasteful flourishes in there. <laughs> well, there are two drummers, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Mickey Hart's trying to make everybody forget that his dad stole a bunch of their money a couple oh of months God, ago. Oh, my God, that's <laughs> right. Trying to get those cool flourishes in. <laughs> that's right. Which I just learned, by the way, is the his dad was the song uh, He's Gone. They wrote that about his dad, like after he took the money and ran away and then they got him like they got him out of their life. They wrote the song. He's gone. And the line steal your face right off your head came out of that song. And the steal your face thing was one of those marketing things that was just enormously effective. And that's what I had that steal your face T-shirt from when I was a kid. So I guess he probably made them more money in the long run by giving them that great line. What? Uh, well, I don't know that story. He renewed their contract with with Warner Brothers, I think, or whoever they're with. He was their manager at the time. Renewed their contract without their knowledge, took most of the money that got fronted from that contract and just dipped. Bought and vitamin C reds and cocaine and took <laughs> yeah. off. And his son was in the band. He was stealing <laughs> from his son. Jesus well, then, then apparently also, this is all leading up to right when they go into the studio for this, they get arrested in New Orleans, which is uh, chronicled in trucking, and they had to bribe their way out. So they were really cash poor at this point. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to the next song on our list. This one's called Sugar Magnolia. Sugar Magnolia, fossils blooming. That's all empty and I don't care. So my baby down by the river. She'd have to come up soon for air Sweet blossom, come on Under the willow We can have high time All right, I'm going to take a swipe at this one. So 
first time I had ever heard this song, I was excited when it first came on. It kind of sounded like, you know, what's the band song up on Cripple Creek? A little funky. And then the vocals came in, like the five-part harmony, and it sounded like a church youth group. Like, it just completely lost all of its bite. I have never liked this song. This song is, to me, pretty cheeseball. And I have probably an uncharitable opinion of it because it is a staple of the dead and people love this Uh, song. Talk about it like it's great. Never really did it for me. And I agree, the the Bob Weir vocal is just, him as a lead singer, I don't really buy it most of the time. It's not that great. But I will say, maybe my new favorite euphemism for having sex is we can discover the wonders of nature, <laughs> which I thought was great. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's good. Rolling in the rushes. <laughs> I like that he has a woman who pays his speeding ticket. I thought, I remember thinking yeah. that was really funny when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Takes the wheel when he's seeing double. It's like, that's when you stop driving. You have to be seeing double before you have to be like, you know what? You should probably take over here. <laughs> I like the tune. I agree somewhat. I mean, Bob Weir is not as good a singer as yeah. Jerry, but I think this is an example where he sounds pretty good. This might be my first Grateful Dead song that landed with me when I put that greatest hits album on for the first time. You know, it's easy to like, it sounds like a single. I sort of agree with the Bob Weir vocal stuff, but I think it's a success. All right, we're going to move on. Next song up we're going to talk about is Candyman. So there is a great video online, and it is Phil Lesh, Bob Weir, and Jerry Garcia with an acoustic guitar, and they're rehearsing Candyman, rehearsing the vocals. And Bob Weir is really struggling. And Jerry Garcia oh, at the end of it is just like, you're really right. Are. Yes. Yeah. And he, his advice is, you got to like push it, but don't sing loud, sing out. And I was like, that's the least helpful advice you can give. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by but that. that but that might explain one of the vocal things that I, I think I was able to point out on this song is everyone sounds so tentative. No one's committing to the note. It's, eh, nobody just sings it. That's, they do. They do kind of swell in like horns, don't they? On the on the. I think that's kind of. But I I thought that was a response to Jerry's vocal timbre generally. Like Jerry always seems kind of whispery to me, and I like his version of the vocal here because he sounds kind of haunted. I just I wrote down. I don't know, the the little inconsistencies with the harmonies really just don't bother me with this music at all. But this is ground this is ground we've covered on the podcast before. Adam's bothered by everything. I'm bothered by very little. <laughs> well, I, I specifically requested Candyman because I know well, first of all, me and my wife have a long-standing debate about Candyman, which she just hates. This comes up. This is this is basically a pivot, this is like a transition point in like a bedtime sequence. Candyman, right? So I love Candyman. I, Rob made a funny face at the audience at home. You can't see. It was not that sort of bedtime sequence. part of a sequence. bedtime sequence? <laughs> well, the kids. The kids <laughs> listen to uh, music. Uh, you yeah. come in in a towel, baby, hit the hit the Candyman yeah. song. We're, we're, pre- we're prepping for the wonders of nature. And yeah, right exactly. at Candyman, it gets weird <laughs> right. every time. Yeah. Like, operator got you all hot and horny, and then Candyman just brings <laughs> you right down. Yeah, but but I, I love this song. There's something about it that just, I don't know, it just has this weird like, ghostly 
softly use I do like that word. It has this weird lurching, sort of lurking, you know, but like not in a dirty way. Like the content of the song, I assume it's about a drug dealer. Definitely. I agree. I wrote that if another band was performing this same tone poem, it would sound like a pervy sexual song. But if this is in this version, it's absolutely about a gaunt heroin dealer. (laughs) Yeah, it's the most laid back murder revenge of all time. (laughs) (laughs) I will say. Rob, I agree with you, generally speaking, on this album and with this type of music, flaws in the harmony don't really bother me all that much. However, at the end of the first chorus at a minute and 45, like they are really searching for those notes. It's pretty obvious that is Bob Weir who was trying to find his note. Mostly <laughs> poor, obvious because I saw, <laughs> I saw the rehearsal right. and he just couldn't do it. And Jerry's kind of like, "You're not doing it. You're not doing it." And so, well, let's just go in and do it anyway. Let's pop that in so you can hear it. You're going out of tune a lot, a bunch. Sing it out. Don't sing it loud, but sing it out. But I will give them a lot of credit because I believe, and I don't have 100% verification on this, but I believe that this is not three guys on three separate microphones ISOed doing three separate tracks. I think this is three guys around one microphone singing all at the same time, which we stated it before. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that. Like remarkably hard to do that. If anybody else is a little off, it bumps you unless your note is just locked in there. And when you're recording an album as quickly as they're recording this album, it's not going to be locked in. You're working on a lot of stuff. So I will give them credit. I remember when we were in the chop, a lot of people would say, hey, you know, I liked what you were trying. And, uh, you know, I I can say that about, I like what they're trying. They didn't quite nail it, but I like what they're trying. Can we put that on a shirt? Can that be some merch? (laughs) I like like what you're trying. trying. Go screw yourself. Uh, A funny, a fun tidbit about this song is that the guy that plays keyboards his name's Ned Langan, and he met the band because he just contacted them after seeing them like a Halloween performance in 1969. That was a trend. He, was an MIT. he just asked the band to be in it. They're like, yeah, sure, come on. Yeah, he was an, he was an MIT student, and he contacted them, and uh, he appeared on this song and several other songs and sat in with them many times. Adam alluded to it, but they did function for a long time like a commune. They were They would take a lot of people into their kind of family, and it was dysfunctional at times, and they looked to Jerry Garcia as the leader, but he eschewed leadership and that created problems. They even took a little break in the seventies. I watched that documentary. I didn't know that before. And everyone else was like, I need to stop touring and go home and like live a real life. And Jerry Garcia just immediately kicked up touring with the Jerry Garcia band and took no break. (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) Actually, interestingly, I was watching about Jerry Garcia's death and they said that basically touring killed him. He should have stopped touring. He was in very bad health. One of the things that Jerry said was, I have so many people dependent upon me. Their livelihoods depend upon me touring. And I can't stop, so I'm going to keep going. And it eventually killed him. I mean, that and like the diabetes and the smoking and the drinking and the heroin and all the cocaine and stuff like that. But I found that to be an interesting way to look at it. He, as you said, he eschewed leadership, but he did still feel a sense of ownership of yeah. this entire 
crazy Viking ship they had going. Not to draw like the direct line back to fish, right? And that obvious comparison. But Trey said something very similar in like the early 2000s when he had a pretty serious drug problem and sort of had to get clean. Is he basically said, I was completely stressed out about running a merchandising company that needed to perform a hundred <laughs> concerts a year. Right. I employed a hundred people in a merchandising company and it was stressing me the fuck out. Yes. And <laughs> he's not just talking about the people that are employed by them. He, what do those fans do yeah. when the Grateful Dead stops sure. touring? Yeah, that yeah, is a straight yeah. up modern day caravan. Yeah. We've all been in those parking lots or versions of those parking lots. Those people don't have anything else to go home to. <laughs> There's two to 8,000 people at any given show. They got nowhere exactly. else to go. Like, I guess Deep Banana Blackout's going on tour. We got to go follow them for a while. <laughs> It's a real band. I did not make that name up. <laughs> well, that actually, that's one of the interesting things is that it took a long time, relatively, for another band to take up the mantle. I think it's because the Grateful Dead owned it so thoroughly and Fish really was the next one kind of late 80s, early 90s started to approach that same status such that when Jerry Garcia died, they were the natural successor in a lot of people's minds. And then since then, there's a bunch of other bands that do a version of that, right? So in that documentary I mentioned that I watched, as as Tom was describing kind of the downfall of Jerry Garcia, they were playing the next song on our focus list, which is Broke Down Palace. Fare you well, my And this was the song that today, listening to our focus list one more time, I actually cried listening to this song because I was thinking about the one thing Jerry Garcia never wanted was to be in the spot that he created for himself at the end of his life, which is just this crazy, ironic twist, heavy song. I mean, you probably cried because this is one of the greatest American songs of all time. This song is fucking amazing. I love this song. It's excellent. A everything, everything from the beginning of the song where the song starts and they have hit a chord on an acoustic guitar, but you don't hear the strike. You just hear the, the ring out and it kind of comes in and it gives you that sense that it's been going on for a while and you're just sort of walking into the room when it happens. Everything from there on out is executed effing perfectly. It's so good. It's so good. Adam, did you come across the story about this song? I don't know that this is true, but there's a legend about this song. No, please tell me. So I don't know that this is true, but I, we, you know, this, this definitely travels in the sort of Grateful Dead lore. So the legend about this song is that they're in the studio recording it, right? They, they're, they're getting ready to track Jerry's vocal and Jerry gets the message that his mother has died. Oh my God. And before he leaves, they're like, you got to do a take. And this is that take. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah. I don't know that that's true, but if it is- It's a like, great story. Yeah. I want it to be true. Fare you well, my honey. Fare you well, my one true love. The birds have flown. So good. The lyrics are, it's an amazing song. It's so well constructed. And it's a great, to me, it's a great example of a song. I've been listening to this album since I was 17 or something. I have to admit, this probably didn't jump out to me back then as much as some of the other tunes. But upon reflection, and as my life goes on, it's, in my mind, clearly the best written song. 
And you're right, the lyrics are just so beautiful. It's a far gone lullaby sung many years ago. Mama, many worlds have come since I first left home. Mm. Like that makes me feel oh. a chill right now as I'm saying it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the whole yeah. imagery of the river, just that imagery, a river, it's in motion. It's not still. It's dynamic. I love every part. And just a line gonna leave this broke down palace on my hands and my knees it's there was a movie made in 1999 just called broke down <laughs> palace because they were like that's right. a pretty damn good we should they should have gotten money for that by the way they should have gotten <laughs> paid off right, right, right. let's right. talk about let's good. talk about movement i'm glad you mentioned the river because i looked at the chords this song i learned this on on piano or i was mm-hmm. playing around with it this week and it's got really interesting major second movement right and as well as like a weird key switching thing so it kind of feels like the song is in g major because you have this C, D, G resolve going on at different parts of the song. But it actually, the first chord they hit is an A major, which is really weird. And you have these multiple spots in the song of two semitone movement. So the first two chords are A to B minor, the fare thee well line. Then you have the C to D movement, which is the all have flown except you alone. Then later they do G to A. It's got it's always got this like moving forward quality to it. That's really interesting. We are now going to round this out and throw it around the studio to get those crucial votes on whether or not you need to hear this album before you die. So let's throw it over to Phil first. Yeah, this is an easy yes for me. This is just a great record. And it's a yes, like not in an aggressive way. It's a yes. And like, this is beautiful music and you should enjoy it both directly and indirectly. Rob. Yeah, it's such an easy yes. This is an absolutely essential piece of music. It's beautiful. It's well-constructed. I think it's produced very nicely. It only reflects, as we've been talking about, one small sliver of what the Grateful Dead are. But I think it's a great entry point for the Grateful Dead, who I believe are greatly misunderstood and, and have a lot of different facets to them. I mean, I didn't mention it, but just on a personal level, like the Grateful Dead, the existence of the Grateful Dead and the San Francisco scene are the reason I left home and moved to California. I mean, ultimately, that's what drew me there was the history of bands like this. And I'm still here 20 years later. And we didn't even talk about my favorite track on the record, which is Ripple. That's the one I think this should be played in church. But anyway, listen to it. Many, many great tracks. All right, Tom. You know, uh, like the rose, the American beauty that is pictured on the album cover, this is a beautiful product that grew out of a fertile soil that was long cultivated to get where it was. You don't make this album your first go through. You don't make this album without some skid marks on the, the road of life. Absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely a must listen. I will never regret putting this album on. Nice. All right. So it doesn't really matter what my vote is. Grateful Dead, you're in. But I will say that if you had asked me this time last week, six days ago, I probably would have said no. However, spending time with this album, watching that documentary, listening to a couple of their live albums, I get it. It's something special. And the author of that book, A Long Strange Trip, his name's Dennis McNally. He had a quote that really represents my thoughts. He said, This was the purest form of the dead put down in the studio. If you ignore the rabid fans, ignore the lack of all expected elements of American entertainment, then you will find there's a richness that fills your soul. That is heavy. And this was an amazing week for me. Very happy to be doing this podcast. Because again, when the hell was I just going to put on this album? Having never listened to it in my life, you know, put it on on a whim wasn't going to happen. So... Thank you to, to this crew for introducing me to this. I'm, I'm going to do one more thing here. The fact that 
my favorite song, Broke Down Palace, and my second favorite song, Box of Rain, is not even Rob's favorite song. That's a great album when there's multiple people that are like, I have multiple favorite songs (laughs) on this album, and the opinions are so varied that, um, Phil, your favorite song is Candyman, right? I I don't... Let's just say yes for the sake of argument. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yes for the sake of Tom's point. Congratulations, Grateful Dead. American Beauty, it deserves to be on the list. You probably already knew that, but anyway, go listen to it if you haven't heard it. It got a a real holdout like me on board, so well done, gents. All right, now we are going to throw things over to Rob, who has his hand in the mailbag today. Ah, yes, thanks, Adam. I do have a great mailbag. We've been a little remiss lately, but this one actually deals with something very near and dear to our hearts, as you're about to see. Cannibal Corpse? You nailed it. Yeah, you nailed it. (laughs) Stan from Oregon writes, Hey guys, love the pod. It's a testament to your good humor, reasonable open-mindedness, and interpersonal chemistry that you all have such similar taste in music, yet still produce an interesting product. Sure, often one or several of you will say something that leaves me shaking my head and yelling wrong, (laughs) but it's all in good fun. He goes on. Recently, I've become aware of a statistical anomaly beginning to form around your use of the, in quotes, albinator, Uh the, in quotes, device you use to select each new album from the 1001 list. This is the probability-defying anomaly. There are 21 albums on the 1001 list involving either A, the Beatles, or B, a post-Beatles solo project or band, or C, Neil Young. And at this point, you've gone through over 10% of the list, and the albinator has not selected any of these 22 albums. Probability dictates that this definitely should have happened by now. Now, I should point out. <laughs> I, I love you, by the way. I love this guy. <laughs> Yo, this guy's. can we, can this guy be in the podcast? I was going to say, can we get him yeah, on? Stan, you're Let's welcome on. You're welcome on. to come on. This, it's this good. The statistical anomaly is not quite yet massive, but it is interesting that so many offbeat, out of left field, one album on the list artists have been reviewed already, but not the members of the Beatles, aside, of course, from your Let It Be episode, which is actually not on the list. Anyway, he he closes by saying, the real point of this email is that I'm a pedantic nerd with too much time on our hands, but I figured I'd share this information. Anyway, keep up the good work. If he's suggesting that we're leaning on the scales of the Albinator, oh, my stars. (laughs) We'll have to to wait and see how this statistical anomaly continues to develop. I should write him back and ask him what his confidence intervals are on this prediction. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's a good, that is a good question. You know, also, we could review the algorithm with him. I mean, that was pretty, you know, we put that together pretty quickly. Maybe. Oh, sure. Our books are open, Stan. Our books are open. We're ready for an audit. (laughs) We're an open source project here. All right. Great. Well, thank you, Rob, Stan. We appreciate the feedback. You can also write in at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts. Again, if you find any other statistical anomalies, if I'm not talking about Hammond organs enough or harmonies enough, or I'm generally wrong, you guys let us know. All right, next we're going to throw things over to Tom, who's got the albinator ready. And Tom, what do you do? do? I'm beating the shit out of the albinator. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) What's wrong with you, Albinator? <laughs> I thought you were st- sticking like a jump drive in there. Or oh something. no, no, right, no. that right. was that. That was a USB drive that I had coded in LSD when I shot in there. <laughs> no, <right. laughs> the Albinator is going to be up so late. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to give it a spin, see what comes out. So, without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to. The album is called Funhouse, and the band is The Stooges. So Iggy Pop 
number two. Let's get the let's get the statistical uh, readout on whether that Stan. was uh, probable or not. Um, <laughs> I think he appears on the list four times, as I recall. That's oh wow, man! Yeah. For for a fucking junkie from Michigan, that guy made well. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> Big surprise! I've never heard this album, so it'll be a fun new listen for me. Hopefully, it's a fun new listen for you, folks. You have your homework assignment. It is the album Funhouse by the Stooges. That is going to do it for us today here at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. And I'm Tom. Boosh. 